0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Degena Door, one of the hosts of the channel. Today we're talking to Dr. Fabio Famelli on a recently published edited volume that he co-edited with um, Andrea Caslioni and Karina Roth, Defining Shugendo, Critical Studies on Japanese Mountain Religion published by Bloomsbury Academics in 2020. Dr. Rambelli, welcome to the show again.
0: Thank you. Thank you, Dagenia. Good to be here again.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Um, I wonder if you can begin the interview by saying something about yourself. I know that we've done introductions with you before, but um, say something about yourself uh, for our listeners who are listening to this particular episode.
0: Uh, Okay, yeah, with pleasure. So I am Fabio Rambelli, Um, I hold a PhD from uh, Italy and I've been working on uh, Japanese religions and uh, I would say intellectual history um, for quite some time now. (laughs) Um, My main uh, topic of interest has always been esoteric Buddhism, especially the Shingon tradition and gradually I moved away from that uh, or to the margins of that through like medieval Shinto, for example, and uh, later like early modern developments and different aspects of Japanese religiosity that are normally kind of uh, ignored or forgotten or downplayed. How I became interested in Japanese religions? This is a good question. Um, so I immediately after, you know, at the end of high school, I enrolled in uh, Japanese studies at the University of Venice in Italy. and. Uh, course that I was most uh, really fascinated in was um, a course on the religions and philosophies of East Asia with a special focus on Japan. And uh, at the time, I was interested in semiotics already, and like, you know, philosophy of language, you know, like theories of meaning and all that. And I thought that um, esoteric Buddhism in particular had a very articulate, very rich, sophisticated theory of meaning and, and the semiotics. Um, and in fact, I wrote my B, uh, MA thesis and then later the PhD on um, on that. But that's really what got me interested in Japanese religions. I mean, not necessarily the cults or the beliefs, but more like the um, intellectual background. You know, the the the, the conceptual structure that uh, Buddhism first and Shinto later kind of developed uh, in Japan. So yeah, so here I am.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really obvious from um, your work and also the edit volumes that you edited that you have a really kind of expansive and diverse academic interest uh, with regards to Japanese religion. It's, it's very impressive and exciting.
0: Okay, well, thank you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Great. Um, so first of all, um, tell us how the Defining Shugendo project began. Uh, so what brought the chapter authors of this book together to write on Shugendo? This is
0: kind of an interesting story because um, there was a time in 2000, what was it, between 2016 and 2018, that um, Andrea Castiglioni and Karina Roth were both at UCSB, at the University of California, uh, Santa Barbara, where I also am. And um, it is quite unusual to have three specialists of Japanese religions in the same place. Uh, Even, you know, it was just for a short period of time. So we decided to do something together. And both Andrea and Karina work on Shugendo. So we decided, why don't we do something on Shugendo that covers the most recent trends in scholarship? And so we did a conference in 2017, I believe, um, uh, where we invited uh, some of the leading scholars. And some people are doing very innovative research on, 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 on Shugendo. And out of the conference, again, we decided to edit, to collect the papers and, um, and edit them. And the book is the result of that effort.
1: Um, so for those of our listeners who might be less familiar with Shugendo, um, can you tell us briefly what it is? Um, for example, it's Key Beliefs and Practices. Hmm.
0: Yeah, you see, this is a difficult question because you would think <laughs> that everybody knows what Shugendo is. And in fact, it's not very easy to define. So literally the, ter- the term means a way, though, of ascetic practice that should to attain miraculous results. And that is Gen. So, so basically, um, so there are practitioners of this and uh, of this tradition and in pre-modern times, uh, those were professional religious um, activists um, called the Shugenja. So, you know, the people who practice and achieve uh, miraculous results or Yamabushi, those who hide in the mountains or something like that. So Shugenja or Yamabushi are the practitioners, the specialists of Shugendo. Um the beliefs of this tradition so it's a very widespread and very diverse tradition uh, first of all and the beliefs are centered on esoteric buddhism Mikyo, uh, both shingon or uh, i should say either shingon and or tendai and uh, they focus on the possibility to become a buddha in this very body you know the concept of soku Jobutsu. butsu and uh, and uh, they claim that it is possible to attain this Buddhahood and experience it through ascetic practices on specific sacred mountains. So so you have groups of, uh, like I said, professional ascetics who spend uh, um, weeks, I mean, long parts of each year, or oh, sorry, they used to, right, in promoter Times, um, spend, uh, you know, sizable portions of the year by peregrinating on uh, specific mountains, and in particular there is the spring peregrination and, uh, and the fall uh, peregrination, where these ascetic groups of ascetics like entered, literally the mountains, and went up and uh, tracked uh, specific paths on the mountains for several days, sometimes several weeks. Um, we're talking about arduous and um, you know, tracks uh, carrying heavy uh, equipment with um uh, ritual implements uh, for for hundreds of miles uh, in the mountains, um, night uh, rituals, fasting, uh, and all kinds of activities, and uh, but thousands of prayers. You know, along the way uh, to particular stones, to particular images of Buddhas that are you know made in stone along the way in little halls uh, on the mountains, to particular peaks, for example, that are considered to be embodiments uh, of uh, gods and all that. And through this long and arduous process, uh, all framed within, you know, uh, concepts of esoteric Buddhism, with also influences from local cult traditions, like what we call Shinto, then, then uh, practitioners, uh, experience, you know, uh, like an altered, uh, sense of, of themselves, which they associated with some particular miraculous powers that they claim to possess. So uh, I I don't know if this kind of renders the the idea. Uh, These are professionals. So so what they do is not only like going around the mountains. I mean, when they are not in the mountains, they use the powers that they claim they have um, to perform uh, like uh, religious rituals in villages and towns, to perform uh, um, all kinds of services. They were also itinerant. So um, these groups have... They were uh, active in particular regions and areas. So they were traveling from one village in one town to the other, carrying goods like medicines, books, amulets, and like I said, performing rituals along the way. So mm, this is what they did. Now it is a little different because very few of them are professionals. And those who are, I mean, they have their own temples, but others are kind of um, I should I shouldn't say amateurs because but they have a different job. Let's say during during the the year and they and during several days or several weeks of the year they still go in the mountains and they do these type of ascetic practices.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's it's really obvious from this uh, collected um, group of essays that Shugendo is it's quite diverse, right? And and I guess the problem of defining Shugendo becomes more complicated. Um, when we encounter, you know, representations of it in popular culture and poetry right, as we will discuss later. Um, absolutely, so, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess the, the process of defining Shugendo will be an ongoing one, as this edit volume shows.
0: Mm. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um so the introductory chapter mentions that a primary intervention of this edit volume is to disentangle um quotes um bracket shugendo studies uh, discourses from the yoke of folklore studies and relocate them with the broader track of religious and historical studies. Um, please elaborate a little bit on this point and tell us more about what this edit volume is trying to do.
0: Um, well, uh, answering your question you know, implies like uh, addressing um, the ways in which um, uh, Japanese religions or Japanese religiosities have been studied in the academia over the past like 100 years or or more. And um, so um, this is, you know, well known, but there has been this significant bifurcation according to which religious studies traditionally, right, I mean, focuses on texts and uh, doctrines, right? And then uh, only later kind of rituals were brought in. But even so, um, the majority, the large part of religious studies of Japan today, and that is probably true also for other religious traditions, I'm not sure, but the majority of religious studies really focuses on like established Buddhism and um, and uh, and their main authors in pre-modern times. So that you have books about Shindan, books about Dogen, books about Kukai, and their thought and some of the practices that they did. Now, of course this doesn't cover the entire spectrum because most people were not really exposed to any of these uh, lofty teachings and uh, and sophisticated rituals that took place at the main temples near the capital of kyoto or perhaps in 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 tokyo right so shugendo in fact uh, covers a whole gamut of uh, ritual and positions and beliefs that um, took place all over the archipelago of Japan for many centuries. So, in this sense, it is really uh, important, but it has been excluded by scholarship precisely because of its non-elite background. Right? We're talking about like commoners' uh, beliefs and commoners' rituals. Now, um, an exception is the um, is the fact that some scholars of Shugendo have emphasized the Shugendo textual tradition and that enabled them you know to try to let's say nobilize shugendo by putting it you know on par with other uh, schools of esoteric buddhism but the large bulk of shugendo studies is really uh, like uh, part of folklore studies and as you know folklore studies is not really part of the academia right especially in america uh there are very few uh, folklore specialists uh in general, and I can probably think of three (laughs) folklore specialists uh, focusing on Japan. So that means that a lot of uh, um, what constituted the core of Shugendo has been basically excluded by scholarship. And by treating it as uh, folklore studies, for for the few who do, right, Uh, or who did, I mean, folklore is a kind of a debased form of religiosity, right? It's a kind of religiosity that is, well, I mean, sorry, this is not what I believe, but, you know, this is the, the way it is presented or the way it is conceived, right? It's very close to superstition. It's kind of an uninformed, illiterate, um, again, superstitious set of beliefs and practices. This has really powerfully marginalized the importance of Shugendo in Japanese culture and, and our understanding of it. So it is true that, There is also a component of folklore studies that claim that folklore, it's really the essence, you know, the cultural essence of a a people, which um, gets very close to cultural nationalism. And this is also a component of Shugendo studies as, you know, being conceived as part of folklore studies. So... I think that all of these, you know, causes so many problems and ultimately obfuscates, you know, the importance of Shugendo in Japanese culture that in this book we decided to take a very different um, perspective uh, by following, you know, the the most advanced uh, scholars, uh, both in Japan and and elsewhere, who try to disentangle, like you said, you know, Shugendo studies from uh, folklore. And uh, we want to bring it back within religious studies but in a broader sense right religious studies as it is done today right that encompasses elite and popular cultures um central and marginal cults and all that um teachings doctrines and and rituals in a way that speak to each other we don't believe that um That commoners in villages were kind of ignorant of, uh, and they had no uh, doctrinal basis or no doctrinal understanding. Of course, they did. I mean, they understood it in their own way, but their own way. It's important for us to understand. So this is what we are trying to do: bringing it back to in in a broader uh, conceptualization of religious studies, and also in a broader contextualization of history, because uh, we can probably say things about you know historical approaches to. To Shugendo, uh, but um, I think it is important. See, one of the components, one of the assumptions of folklore is that it never changes, right? You know, folkloric ways are always the same since the most remote antiquity, Antiquity and, um, and Shugendo has been treated in that, in that way. So again, this is another problem and that's why this book tries to present a very different uh, a more open, we hope, uh, image of uh, of Shugendo to the public.
1: Thank you. Yeah, this book is it's in different parts, and and all these different parts address um, very new approaches to looking at Shugendo material culture, uh, popular culture, visual culture, narratives, and also rituals. Right, like you said. Um, so we will see uh, through our discussion today how you know this will help us to kind of overcome this essential uh, view of of Shugendo as something sort of Intrinsically Japanese, or um, or as some kind of national folk folklore, right? Um, so it'll be interesting. Um, so the book is divided into four parts. Um, part one kind of discusses the historiography around Shugendo. Um, it's entitled "Intellectual History of Shugendo Studies." Um, so tell us how has Shugendo been studied so far. Um, especially in um, academia. I guess we kind of briefly touched on this in the previous question, um, but how has Shigendo been studied both in and outside of Japan and how these different um, academia kind of lineages um, differ?
0: Um, well, you see, what is interesting is that until very recently, uh, there was no difference in the, in the academic lineages. Basically, um, Non-Japanese scholars were following the lead of Japanese scholars, and there are two or three uh, main scholars. One is Gorai Shigeru, the other one is uh, Miyake Hitoshi, and the third one is, um, is uh, Suzuki Masataka, who is also a contributor of this book. And Suzuki is the one who has begun to, you know, move away from the legacy of uh, his two predecessors. But but basically, Gorai and uh, and uh, to a different extent and in a different way, Miyake have presented Shugendo as um, a folkloric, really nationalistic in a way, right? It's something that exists only in Japan. I mean, and um, according to them, and um, and uh, something that is historically unchanging in its essence. And. Uh, Western or non-Japanese scholars have basically followed their lead. So, so this is where we stand until very, very recently. Um, so that's why uh, we thought that it is really important to address uh, or to propose an intellectual history of Shugendo studies, right? To see how Shugendo studies has been conceptualized, by whom and why, and what you know, were the motivations behind this type of research. And um, so, basically, the history of Shugendo studies, right? And um, and that is something that again Suzuki Masataka uh, wrote uh, for for this book, and um, and it's really new because, like I said before, uh, Shugendo is traditionally understood as something that dates back to the most remote antiquity. It is only and exclusively Japanese in its essence, of course, you know. It encompasses things coming from India or China or Korea or whatever, but still the essence is Japanese, and and that never changes. So this is the kind of image that we are trying to, 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 to challenge. And in fact, this chapter here that you mentioned in part in part one um, shows how folklore sta- first of all shows how shugendo was reinterpreted um, as part of uh, of uh, Japanese nationalism. Uh, you know, in the 30s and the, in the early 40s, when Japan needed to mobilize all its intellectual resources to, to strengthen the idea of this kind of national essence uh, to support the um, war effort, then Shugendo, the importance of Shugendo is revived as, as a contributor to this, um, to this uh, ideological endeavor. And, uh, and even before that, you know, you have the, the idea that, again, uh, the folk is the, uh, that comes from Germany right, you know, to this very um, very conservative and uh, in the 20s and 30s very close to Nazism to this kind of scholarship that emphasizing the folk as the essence of a nation and the folkloric ways as you know intrinsically different from and uh, incommensurable from other cultures and this was the dominant scholarship in the 20s and 30s in the world And the Japanese pick it up and bring it back to Japan. So uh, we think that it's really important, uh, on the contrary, to emphasize the the history of Shugendo to see how it changed, Um, not only regionally, which has been done to an extent, but also in terms of time, you know, to see what happens at different historical periods and how the doctrines and the rituals are changed. How the um, groups, the agents involved in Shugendo uh, change and what kind of things they do. And this is all very important. And I think we are very behind in trying to make a general assessment of the impact of Shugendo you know, uh, on Japanese culture. But 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 I think that this book is a good beginning, you know, to begin to, to think about these questions.
1: Certainly, yes, as we'll see in the in the following chapters, um, um You know, many of these authors are definitely challenging a lot of these um, notions, right, um, present in older scholarship. And and part two takes us to four different Shugendo sites in Japan. Um, So, namely, the Kumano Sanzan area in the Ki Peninsula, uh, Mount Togakushi in Nagano Prefecture, uh, Mount Haguro in Yamagata Prefecture, and Daigoji in Kyoto. Um, So, these four chapters reveal that Shugendo centers actually regulated really complex networks based on symbiotic interactions between not just Shugendo prof- uh, professionals, but also Buddhist monks, uh, lay members of religious fraternities, and also lay devotees. Um, so how did these networks and interactions work? Um, can you give us a few examples?
0: Um, this is, in fact, very, very complicated because... Um I think we don't know enough to to try to determine some some general patterns. Of course, like you said, you know, you have Shugendo professionals, you know, the Yamabushi that I mentioned before. You have Buddhist monks uh, residing at particular temples that are related to these groups of uh, Yamabushi. And then you have uh, lay devotees who support either the temples or the Yamabushi or both. and then you have religious confraternities who perform rituals in which um, Yamabushi and Shugenja um, are the leaders. But then you also have other aspects that, uh, that further complicate the picture, right? So, and, and again, again, the mix really changes. You know, the, the, the weight of each of these groups changes according to the historical period and the, and the locale. So, the professional religious groups, you have the official temples, right? You have village authorities you have lay confraternities you have uh, governmental authorities in the tokuwa period in particular right you have the local feudal authorities and the, and the bakufu then you have uh, <clears throat> the spread of like shinto activists and the yamabushi are also kind of you know interacting with them and then you have um, you have practitioners Of um, like mountain asceticism, who are not Yamabushi, who don't belong to any specific Yamabushi group, but they have their own groups. And the the confraternities are often in competition with each other. Um, You have, for example, you have different groups of uh, Shugendo professionals using the same mountains but for different purposes and and different parts of the mountains, like Mount Fuji, a group goes up from the north, another, the north slope, another group goes up from the south slope and they are in competition. So you see all these kind of different things that happen and, um, and it's very hard to study the interaction. So that's why it is really important to focus on one particular network, right? One particular mountain or one particular region where the mountain is located and see Who does what and why, right, and to whom? So these uh, chapters here in part two are kind of beginning to trace these uh, agents um, in multiple ways, in ways that I think has not been done uh, sufficiently in the past. Because again, like I said, you have so many people, so many agents involved that you cannot really solve this only from within Shugendo studies, right? If you only study a Shugendo group or the doctrines of that particular Shugendo group, you really have no idea of what the Shugendo group is doing, when, where, to whom, right? And in competition to whom. So that's why I think it's really important to expand uh, the scope and the perspective and place particular Shugendo groups uh, in their mountains, in uh, conflict and collaboration with all other agents. And this is what these these chapters are trying to do. I hope all of this makes sense. I mean, I know it can be quite confusing, but uh, um, uh, this is what, uh, you know, this, this is what was going on on the field at the time. Again, we're talking about the 1700s, the 1800s here. Now things are very different. I mean, in, in a way they're much more, um, they've been simplified in many ways. But uh, you can add other layers, right? You know, the role of women, for example. Women were off limits uh, for um, most uh, sacred mountains. So women can only go up to a certain level in the mountain and then only men could go up. Um, then you have people working for the Shuganja while they are, you know, in their mountains so providing, you know, food and, you know, ritual implements. So that's another network that was necessary for you know for these people for these practitioners to to do what they were doing um, you have the role of like children for example how were the children acculturated within these uh, shugando lineages and all that and we know very little about all of this
1: yeah, this is really fascinating It seems that um, studying Shugendo really requires a kind of multidisciplinary approach
0: i think it does precisely because of the nature of these of these particular tradition that extends across many, you know, many different groups of people and and regions.
1: Mm. And part three then kind of turns our attention to the narrative strategies that supported shugendo groups and identities uh, in pre-modern Japan. Um, so we're talking about um, strategies such as iconography, uh, poetic tropes, and representations in popular fiction and drama. Um, so how was shugendo narrated and represented? In um, pre-modern Japan.
0: Hmm. Again, we are only beginning to to <laughs> uh, to, to uncover these large large of representations that are normally not uh, not very well studied. So these chapters here they present a kind of a, a range of positions. So first of all, they begin with. Uh, um, hagiographies in which um, early medieval authors from the like 1200s and 1300s are trying to trace the um, particular mountain, uh, particular ascetic, mount, ascetic, sorry, ascetic practices happening on particular mountains. They're trying to trace it back to both one founder, kind of more or less mythological called Enno Gyoja, who is the, 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 the patron saint, let's say, <laughs> of, uh, of Shugendo, and um, and esoteric Buddhism. And since originally there is no connection, because uh, Enno Gyoja lived and was active before esoteric Buddhism came in, um, so they're trying to make up for um, this lack of connections by involving uh, the Indian patriarch Nagarjuna, for example, who was supposedly residing in some cave in some mountain in Japan, and he transmitted the esoteric teachings to Enno Gyoja while he was practicing on the mountain. So you see how um, narrative becomes a way to overcome um, spatial and temporal distance in uh, in historical events, because, again, Nagarjuna from India end, ends up in Japan, because you have a, um, a gap of several hundred years between Enno Gyoja's life and the uh, the introduction of esoteric Buddhism to Japan, and you see that that can be spanned by this kind of uh, mythopoetic um, uh, narratives. So this is one aspect of what happens. And then you see that once a couple of narratives are in place about about this connection, then they get proliferated and changed and embellished and uh, and transformed over several centuries. So this is the beginning of an important, uh, let's say, literary or narrative tradition within many Shugendu groups. Then you have uh, uh, court um, poets using Chinese poetry, for example, like in the 11th, 12th century, uh, using uh, tropes from Chinese poetry to represent the mountain or some mountains where uh, Shugendo practices were beginning to take place, which, again, is another addition. It shows that this is not so marginal as we thought, because, again, court literati were interested in... um, in those, in those happenings, in those ascetic practices. And later on you see a proliferation of uh, narratives about Shugenja and, and Yamabushi, both in uh, theater, no theater, and Kabuki, Bundaku, and in popular narratives, especially in the Edo period. And what characterizes these later uh, narratives, it's really a sense of ambivalence and ambiguity. In the sense that uh, Yamabushi are presented as both powerful ascetics, you know, endowed with the supernatural powers, and impostors, and sometimes you see those two things, you know, uh, together in the same narrative. Sometimes you see only one of them, and um, and again, this is very interesting because again, the fact that a lot of people in early modern Japan saw the Yamabushi as impostors imply some kind of critical distance, but at the same time, the fact that there were so many Yamabushi in the Edo period, I read somewhere that probably 10% of the Japanese population were related to Shugendo. This is probably an exaggeration, I don't know. But the Yamabushi seems to have, you know, they were everywhere in Japan. It's not only on the top of the mountains, as we imagine today. I mean, they were in the cities, in the marketplaces, Uh, they were traveling all over the country by foot, by boat, and all that. So they were everywhere. So they cannot only be seen as imposters, right? I mean, they really interfaced with important aspects of the Japanese society at the time. And so, again, this particular aspect is also deeply fascinating, I think, right? That you can see how some people can see the potential, you know, nature of the Yamaguchi uh, or Shugendo as a whole as, as imposters, but at the same time, the, the kind of needs, social needs, that these people are are catering to. And, and again, this is something that needs to be explored much more in depth. And iconography is, is similar. You know, you have um, uh, Shugendo represented as like similar to some kind of wrathful deities uh, from esoteric Buddhism, and sometimes they're similar to this kind of grotesque figures known as tengu, you know, kind of bird like or crow like um, figures, um, which implies, which suggests both, uh, you know, the fact that there are not humans or beyond humans, but at the same time, there's also this grotesque nature that is deeply troubling and unsettling, right? So it's a kind of a both way of sacredness, I think, right? The sacred as superior and the sacred as inferior that we find in many many aspects of you know religiosity, in many cultures.
1: Thank you, yeah, this is super fascinating. Um, I know that the edited volume is mostly focused on pre-modern Japan, Shugendo in pre-modern Japan, but I was just wondering, are these narratives and tropes about Shugenda, uh, Shugendo still kind of pervasive in contemporary Japanese society?
0: I wouldn't say so. Um, of course, you can find a few like um, writers who, who use some of these tropes, but I wouldn't say so. You can find some of them in, uh, in popular culture, I'm, I'm sure. I mean, I'm not an expert in manga or anime, but, um, but I wouldn't be surprised if some tropes coming, you know, related to Shugendo are part of this you know, popular culture. But otherwise, you know, Shugendo are no longer supervasive, you know, it's just a few groups of people doing certain things. Uh, I guess in some regions, like in Dewa sanzan you know, Haguro in the, in the parts of northern Japan or um, in other sacred mountains, they are more present in the villages, even today in the community, because, you know, some community members uh, do that. But um, in most of Japan, um, Shugendo is not, really, is not really a thing anymore. In fact, it's interesting to you know, since you brought up you know this thing, this issue is that uh, most. Uh, so when I talk to friends in Japan, for example, you know, um, when they tell me where they go to ski, um, you know the, the the most important ski resorts are former uh, Shugendo mountains, <laughs> but they don't know, right? So <laughs> whereas I don't know that they are uh, that they are ski resorts because I don't ski. So it's interesting to see how the knowledge is so different, right? because they they mentioned mountains, they say, "Oh wow, that's a sacred mountain." And they say, "No, that's a ski resort." <laughs> so you see how things have changed over the the last like uh, I don't know eighty years or so. and how this important and pervasive tradition has been really kind of neutralized in many ways.
1: Yeah, this is really interesting. Your other edit volume, on Maritime Religion, The Sea and the Sacred, and also, I guess, the previous uh, one that we talked about, Animism and Spirits, um, all kind of talk about the relationship between nature and uh, human society, right? This kind of encroaching of human society onto um, natural landscape that was or that used to be considered sacred in many different ways. This is a
0: very interesting phenomenon. Yes. no, that, not that you're pointing that out, you know, it makes me think that a lot of the... So after the humans encroached upon the sacred landscape and appropriated it for, let's say, secular purposes, then they came up with this narrative that, you know, nature is sacred and the Japanese love nature and all that, you know. But that it seems to be a consequence of the loss of the original sacredness of those places and... and And this loss of the sacrality of the landscape has been replaced by a a discourse, a very abstract discourse at that. And um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, this this could be a topic for for further inquiry, uh, for sure.
1: Yeah, um, we look forward to another um, volume, hopefully
0: (laughs) that you you put out. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yes. Um, and uh, coming to the last part of the book, Part Four, um, entitled "Materiality and Visual Culture," um, here the authors of the chapters present a variety of material sources, um, such as copper statues, devotional paintings, stele mounds, and paper talismans uh, related to relevant figures and practices of the Shugendo tradition. Uh, so, what can we learn about Shugendo from these material culture?
0: Well, I think that this well, this is part of the turn to material culture that has been impacting the study of Japanese religions for the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years. And, uh, well, I think we can learn a lot from these objects because, because um, um, they really go beyond you know, the limits of uh, traditional scholarship that was focusing on, like I said, on uh, texts, and, and doctrines. And most of these texts in Shugando were kind of secret texts, so they were not really circulating, you know, a whole lot. And uh, extrapolating the, the essence of Shugendo from texts that very few people read, I mean, would be kind of a gross mischaracterization of the tradition. Whereas working on um, these kind of objects that are they're available for pretty much everyone to see and use. You know, the devotional paintings, the stele, the mounds, paper talismans. Paper talismans were printed and circulated, you know, in the thousands. Mounds are scattered all over Japan and, you know, members of confraternities and uh, Yamabushi themselves, you know, they go there and do their own celebrations and rituals there. Stele, record. First of all, you have like a kind of popular iconographies that are not really part of any elite Pantheon, in some of these stelae, but you also have records about uh, who sponsored those, uh, when and why. Sometimes you have the you know the motivation behind behind, uh, behind the, the the direction of a stelae, and so that gives us a, a, a good sense of who were the people who were actually involved in in these type of practices. And um, and 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 what kind of sometimes what kind of beliefs they had, you know, about about divinities, uh, what kind of rituals were doing. So it really brings uh, alive a lot of the of the Shugendo tradition that textual representations alone cannot really cannot really do. Mm-hmm. I should also say that by the Edo period, we have uh, an incredible amount of written sources that are not only the doctrinal texts, right? You have diaries of Yamabushi, you have um, accounts of pilgr- pilgrimages, you have uh, um, records of visit to places, you have uh, all kinds of documents that really document the, the vitality uh, of uh, Shugendo across many um, layers of society, you know, not only the practitioners and not only the elite uh, monks, let's say, who were... Kind of part of that, but 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 even so, I think materiality and visual culture really brings a completely different layer, completely different understanding of uh, of what was going on at the time. So I think it's crucial, and and this is also this part four is one of the I think most original. Well, I think <laughs> again all the all the chapters in this book are quite original each in their own way. But you know the the focus on materiality and visual culture is uh, relatively new, I think, in terms of Shugendo.
1: Interesting. Speaking of the material turn, um, so I was wondering, what are the new trends in Shugendo studies at the moment? Um, what are the approaches that you would like to see young scholars take in the future?
0: Um, well, well, this sounds like uh, you know self-advertisement, but I think that this book uh, summarizes pretty well. I think uh, the current trends in scholarship, right? So attention to history and um, so, what happened, when, and why? Right in terms of the Shugendo tradition, attention to history, attention to the social and cultural background of the various agents of uh, of the Shugendo galaxy, let's say, and the actors and the networks that you know were sustaining this this um, this tradition. This is what is happening in Japan uh, in Japan today, and gradually it's also extending uh, to other countries. Now, in terms of new approaches, something that I personally would like to see, um, you see, uh, okay, I've been working on Japanese religions for quite some time now, and uh, I never really, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't say so in a, <laughs> in, a public, um, in public, but uh, I, I've never really been able to figure out what Shugendo is and working on this book finally gave me a sense of what you know a sense of, of what it is because again shugendo cannot it's not really another sect of japanese buddhism it's not a widespread folk tradition because it has its own organizations and at the same time it is fairly fluid and flexible and pretty much on the margins. I mean, a lot of authorities, um, Tokugawa authorities, didn't like Shugenja precisely because of their mobility, precisely because they were kind of... uh, um, challenging the, the the rigid social hierarchy that that uh, the Tokugawa government was trying to impose upon Japan, so working on this book, you know, I began to see you know the variety and the complexity of this phenomenon. So the fact that it cannot really be defined easily because again it's broad and widespread and fluid, but at the same time you see its deep presence in. Um, in many parts of Japan for, for several centuries. So, in terms of new approaches, I would really like to see people focusing more on this, right? More on the role of Shugenji in society. If it is really true that there were thousands and thousands of Yamabushi, what they were doing? You know, how were people interacting to them, not only in the mountains, but like in Edo, for example? We know that a lot of marketplaces, for example, from the 1400s until the 1800s, were controlled by Yamabushi. Right, so what is the connection there? Uh, so we're not really talking about only people going up in the mountains and serving the village communities in those mountain areas. We're talking about big cities where, where Yamabushi go and, and do their own things in <laughs> in a way that was different from what other people were doing at the time. So this is, I think it's important to, to, to dig up more. So the role of Shugenja in society, um, I would like to see more on other sacred mountains. You know, A lot of people, especially here in the U.S. and in Europe, are focusing on Mount Omine and, um, and the three mountains of Deva in Tohoku. Uh, in Japan, a lot of people are focusing on Kumano and Mount Fuji uh, for obvious reasons, right? I mean, they, those are important. But there are plenty of other mountains. Like I said, now most of them are ski resorts. <laughs> but most of them are really important in their own region and not necessarily... They're not. They were not doing things similar to what other mountains that are more well known uh, were doing. So I think it is really important to extend the study of Japanese religion beyond the the, the traditional centers, right? Beyond Kyoto um, and the Kyoto region, including Kumano, uh, uh, Edo, Tokyo, right? And and the, and the region there and to all other parts of Japan where a lot of things were happening especially in the Tokugawa period which is not a unified as we all know right it's not a unified Japan and there were a lot of regional varieties another aspect that i think is important and it's not been studied yet especially in especially outside of Japan is the transition to shinto you know in the late Tokugawa period in the like in the 1800s um, Shinto priests uh, from the Yoshida tradition and from other uh, shrines become very active in many parts of Japan and many Amabushi actually begin to follow them. And so they kind of switch away from Buddhism and become Shinto practitioners and that would be interesting to study and see why, you know, what, what, what happened there. And um, because again, this is important to understand what happens then, you know, with the modernization process with when, when Shinto and Buddhism were kind of Officially separated by by a state edict, so. But again, there were already um, movements on the ground that made that separation possible, and the transition, you know, in the world of Shugendo from let's say Buddhist practitioners to so-called Shinto practitioners that happened in the eighteen hundred is probably something that is relevant and needs to be studied more in depth.
1: Wow, this is very interesting. I, I can imagine how you know these different approaches, if they were taken, right, would reveal a very different kind of picture of Shugendo. Very much involved in worldly affairs, um, to, for start, right. So that yeah, would be interesting. Yeah. And
0: yes, exactly. And But you see, it's all... Um, again, we tend to think of rituals as like something boring going through the motions. But, you know, these people were, again, uh, opening up markets. They were setting up uh, the stages for performances. For You know, they, they were doing all kinds of like kind of uh, sermons as uh, entertainment. You know, these were kind of... Um, popular uh, figures, right? They were attracting the attention of, of the people because, again, they were promoting their own uh, their own interests. Uh, they were not boring. <laughs> they, they could be controversial, but certainly not boring. So um, they added to the vitality of Japanese culture in premodern times in ways that uh, have been gradually lost. Uh, I hear that some of these traditions still existed until immediately after World War II, right? And then with the Rapid, um, um, how do you call it? Like economic development that happened, you know, since the fifties, a lot of these things really disappeared, including in the in the provinces, in the countryside. So, um, but some people still have memory of that. I think you know. Uh, so even like collecting, like um, like oral histories about uh, about about these aspects would be important, you know, to preserve this aspect of the tradition. And I I don't think we are doing enough of that.
1: Great. Um, well, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, and before we finish our interview today, uh, we have one last question for you. Uh, tell us about your current projects that you're working on right now.
0: Oh, so my um, I keep working on the sea, I'm trying to look for new sources and new materials. And uh, one project that I have is the um, is the role of fish as divine animals. So um, I'm, I'm finding material on that. I mean, I found material. I'm trying to put it together because again, when we talk about animals and the sacred, you always think about land-based animals, right? And uh, in Japan, of course, there are. I mean, fish is crucial, and there are a lot of fishes that are part of rituals or uh, de- divine. Uh, sorry, deified. And, um, and, you know, things like that. So this is one. The other one is my ongoing project on uh, the Japanese imperial mm, uh, music, uh, Gagaku. And um, especially I'm working on um, cultural history, one particular instrument, the show, where I try to, sh- you know, see the connections between materiality and immateriality, between, like, human intervention and and um, limitations, uh, m- caused by the by the nature of the instrument itself so that will be a kind of an you know, expo- development of my early work on on materiality of, uh, and the sacred
1: thank you it's uh, you always have really exciting projects going on so i'm sure our listeners will also be looking forward to them well thank you so much thank you. for Very
0: kind. <laughs>
1: <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today
0: thank you Daiganya. thank you